0: Hello, and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where every week we provide a fresh perspective on the events and the technology driving the energy transition. I'm Peter White, CEO of Rethink. As usual, I'm joined by our analysts, our hydrogen and wind specialist, Harry Morgan. Hi, Peter. Our solar specialist, Andries Wantonar. Morning. Hi, Andries, And our publisher, Simon Thompson, who will pick out what caught his eye in this week's issue. On the show today, we'll be discussing how some very large Indian solar plants have been put on ice because of difficulties getting materials for the projects due to India's trade tariffs. We talk about Mitsubishi Power Americas buying 40 electrolysers to burn inside turbines and ask if this is really what green hydrogen is for. And we take another peek at atomic fusion and talk about how fast progress is being made. So to get things started, Andries, you're up first. Who exactly has stopped work on this Indian solar plant and how big is it? Well,
1: it's a 900 megawatt plant. There's quite a few of those, but of course, it's still a large one. It's been delayed by Acme and Skatec, which is a Norwegian developer. Really, they've said two things. They've said, well, firstly, we can't get the modules from China because there's this new 40% customs duty on modules, 25 on cells that comes in from April. And we also can't get them from India because uh, this new manufacturing industry that the Indians are trying to create with the protectionism and subsidies hasn't been built yet. They've only started that policy quite recently. I think it may be a year ago. So they just don't have modules. And the broader context is that India used to have a 15% tariff on Chinese, well, not Chinese, foreign, but it's mostly targeted against China, foreign modules themselves. But China's advantages are so great that that's not enough to, to protect the domestic industry. So they're raising it, but they also want to keep installing projects and they have targets they want to meet. So they actually dropped the tariff entirely until April when this new higher one comes up, but it's too late now. So it's the only project very recently that made the news Because you started to hear about this kind of thing last year, and that's when the Indians brought in that exception. They said, well, if you don't make the 2021 deadline for commissioning your project, we'll extend that a few months. And we're also dropping the tariffs before we bring in the new one. But of course, you know, now we've got this new one. And so the question is, uh, will we see some more big complexes getting delayed because of the supply issue?
0: Yeah, so that's going to be disastrous for India. Do you think this is SCATEC just making a point? Or do you think that it actually is simply that their development calculations are thrown out by the tariff, in which case everyone's development calculations post-April? I mean,
1: it sounds like there'll be a dead stop in April. The way things are going, you would expect that, because, of course, people have had this grace period to stock up on modules at precisely the time when the modules are more expensive than usual. I think they're back up to 2017 or 2018 prices. And there just isn't enough to go around to meet demand. So people's ability to stock up is limited. And the other thing is that India is a market that has quite low prices in general, like the non-balancer system costs. And even as much in some rare cases, before the modules increase in price, a utility scale could have half of its cost be the modules because everything else was so cheap. So that makes it very sensitive to this in the utility segment. In a way, I'm kind of surprised that it's only this one project that we're hearing about so far.
0: Yeah, I think I there think may be a, an element here of the Indian government not properly consulting with the solar industry before making these rules.
1: And they already had a stop in 2020 from the pandemic lockdowns because all of their labour went back to their villages and installations were at 2.7 gigawatts or something uh, before getting back up to 11 gigawatts. So it was a third in 2020 of what it normally is. So I wonder if that means they'll tolerate another collapse in installations, or was that just the pandemic? For this year, maybe, but not for longer.
0: That story, like all the others, can be found in our weekly analysis. The link's in the description of the podcast. Okay, in other news this week, we've seen a very large order for electrolysers in America. And I wonder what you thought about this, Harry. Um, Mitsubishi has placed what will be at least 50 million dollars worth of electrolysers with a tiny uh, Norwegian outfit. And the idea is to uh, take the hydrogen these electrolysers produce and mix them in with natural gas turbines. Apart from the fact that that still yields a lot of NOx emissions, is that really going to be financially efficient?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, it's a very interesting sector for the hydrogen industry because you've got to look at when we're going to need hydrogen within the power grid itself. Realistically, hydrogen is not a generation technology, is it? it's not the same as natural gas. If you're going to produce renewable electricity, you're going to have that as renewable electricity. If you're going to produce it to hydrogen, you've obviously got the losses there. So, hydrogen really is going to be a storage medium for long durations. And that's what General Electric are looking at here and how they can basically keep their turbine business alive through 2050 when we won't be burning any natural gas.
0: Not General Electric, Mitsubishi Power.
2: Yeah, sorry, Mitsubishi. General Electric are doing very similar things.
0: Or a direct competitor. Yeah, we understand that.
2: And yeah, a direct competitor also doing the exact same thing and trying to keep their turbine business alive by saying they're going to create these hydrogen ready models. And I mean, they're doing a good job of it in terms of the efficiencies they're getting out from some of the early units we're seeing in development. They're fantastic as turbines go, but the efficiency obviously limited by thermodynamics is going to be lower than that of a fuel cell. Potentially, yes, it is easier to scale a Turbine unit financially, but the round trip efficiencies of fuel cells have a, a significant advantage. The other interesting thing is in what time frame we're going to need these. You only really need them once you've got your non synchronous power, so that's your wind, your solar, your offshore wind, at more than 100% of your power mix. For most countries, that's not going to be until 2035 onwards. 100%? Surely it's more like 80%, isn't it? So in terms of 80%, once you reach 80%, you're more looking at your medium duration storage. So that can be, that can be lithium iron, that can be alternative chemistries, that can be some other sort of medium duration storage. So I know you've written a lot about these in the past. But hydrogen generally is what we're expecting to see once you go beyond 100% and once you're starting to see seasonal variations within your power production. And that does generally only happen once you've got to 100% gross load to demand.
0: Right, I understand, yeah. So it's premature to be doing this by some margin. So, I mean, the little company in Norway, which is about 8 million Norwegian kroner of revenue last year, so it's tiny, Hydrogen Pro, um, suddenly picking up a $50 million order. And its last order was for sustainable aviation fuel projects. So again, where it's another company who is trying to do business as usual in the fossil fuel market effectively and produce aviation fuel that will burn releasing carbon, I mean, a lot less carbon. But it seems that if you're a electrolyzer manufacturer, you've got to take what orders there are from the existing fossil fuel
2: groups, and you can't pick and choose. Yeah, I think especially in the early stages of development, I think it's this is, I mean, a 50-megawatt order is fairly substantial still. So I think it, it's interesting that Hydrogen Pro have had these orders from the fossil fuel industry. I wouldn't necessarily say that's indicative of their electrolyser units. Perhaps they're developing something that's going to be more efficient, but isn't going to be ready until 2040, 2035. Um, Maybe that's what their business plan is. But generally, I'd say, yeah, it's take the orders you can get if you're Hydrogen Pro. And I think building these partnerships with companies like Mitsubishi, is a great thing and to be honest there's going to become a time when mitsubishi realized that their gas turbine business isn't going to exist for very much longer and they're going to probably have to end up acquiring an electrolyzer manufacturer because they're that far behind in development of those technologies so
0: yeah well it wouldn't cost them very much to acquire hydrogen pro at the present although it's ramping its order profile up it claims to um have achieved 93% of the theoretical maximum efficiency in electrolysis. And the nearest rival is on about 79%. So it believes it's substantially more efficient than most of the products out there. It's a sort of high-pressure environment with an add-on structure, a modular construction, so you can just add chunks of power as you go, as well as a different kind of patented electrode technology. So, I mean, they're quite an advanced group but they're very small and you would expect most of the large ones to be looking to achieve similar efficiency levels. What worries me is this Mitsubishi put out a paper this week talking about um, burning hydrogen being emission-free fuel. I mean, there's arguments either side of this. They've got now got $3 billion of orders for a gas turbine that will run at a higher temperature and it will burn hydrogen. But of course... I wonder if its NOx controls to stop nitrous oxide and nitrous oxide being released into the atmosphere are going to work as we go to higher and higher temperatures of turbines. I mean, I know they release a lot less nitrous oxide than CO2 when they burn natural gas, but it just leaves us with this kind of problem that's associated with hydrogen, an emissions problem, whereas using a fuel cell, you don't get it.
2: Yeah, you definitely don't get it it's to the same extent. Obviously, fuel cells do sometimes operate at high temperatures, but it's never going to be the same extent as burning hydrogen directly. Obviously, burning hydrogen actually burns at a much higher temperature than, than natural gas. So I think it's around sort of four or five times more nitrogen oxide emissions. Okay. So yeah, it's something that the hydrogen industry has to be very aware of looking at sustainability going forward
0: all right so we'll look forward to um these small hydrogen startups getting pure green business in the future and again that story is available at the link uh, shown in the description we're going to move on now and talk about uh, your story uh harry we had a little discussion about atomic fusion
2: and how relevant it is what's the breakthrough this week So the breakthrough this week, as it hit the the mainstream media quite hard, was that there was a record-breaking nuclear fusion reaction in Oxford, the jet facility. It was around 16.4 kilowatt hours of power output, which is more than double the previous record we've seen from nuclear fusion reaction. I mean, it's still not that much power. It's only around... The amount to boil 60 kettles or so It's the same as four rotations on your average wind turbine, but it is obviously at more than double the previous record set in 1997 at the same facility. The reaction itself was around 11 megawatts of power output for around five seconds, but obviously these are just numbers and I don't think necessarily there's been that much coverage about what this actually means for the fusion industry. What we're not really seeing from this is that we're getting much closer to having a technical commercially viable fusion reaction we're still looking for this ignition point where a chain reaction occur and where you're getting more energy output from the energy you're putting in i mean we saw back in august i think it was that there was some developments on that front in the us but we're still not making advances at the jet facility on that do all
0: these collaborate does china and america and these european attempts
2: at fusion do they all collaborate They collaborate to some extent. The jet facility in Oxford is part of the Eurofusion collaboration, so that's it's many uh, EU member states, and I think there is very much a race around the world that's not that well shared, particularly between Russia, China, the US and Europe, where some stuff is kept under wraps. They all seem to use fairly similar technologies. um, The tokamak reaction in the jet facility, for example, is technology that was still developed in Russia, but generally the projects themselves aren't developed in collaboration, that much. That being said, what this reaction showed this week is that fusion is potentially quite safe and it can be operated of a sustained power output at the sort of 100 million degrees Celsius that you get in a fusion reaction. And that's really laid the foundations for larger projects. So there's this $25 billion ITA project in France, which is hoping to come online in 2025 with around sort of 500 megawatts of output, which Is a large international collaboration. So that's China, the EU, India, Japan, South Korea, Russia, and the US. It's really pulling in international fusion efforts. And that's what really the hopes of the future of fusion is being pinned on. And that's why the news this week was so important, is because the success seen at JET has laid the foundation for thinking okay, it will be safe to operate these tests at the ITA project in France.
0: Well, we'll no, it's safe once it's using energy and we can control the amount of energy, not while it's still producing less than the amount of energy you put in.
2: Yeah, fusion reactions, it is worth mentioning, are a lot more easy to control than fission reactions. You're much less likely to get thermal runaway with them. Uh, It's not going to suddenly result in a black hole or a Chernobyl disaster uh, that many people expect.
0: I think the word probably is the important one in that sentence. It's yes, every, exactly. Yeah. It's the whole idea of fail safe is that you design it that way.
2: Yeah. The big thing here is that the temperatures needed to create the reaction mean that if there's any sort of failure, the temperatures driving the reaction can simply just be shut off. I mean, it's very hard to sustain hundred billion degrees Celsius anywhere on Earth. So that is going to be really interesting to see how they they continue to keep that operating for sort of sustained reactions. And that's what obviously the JET project has been focused on
1: Once something breaks, it probably just stops having fusion going on, I would guess.
2: Yeah, so the cost of it is still undetermined, really. Obviously, we're still trying to prove that it works, and then it'll be how we can make it commercial and make it cheap. It will be the same sort of base load of power, and theoretically, the term we hear a lot with nuclear fusion is limitless. Deuterium and tritium, which are the the two isotopes of hydrogen that will be used to to cause the reaction are found in a huge abundance around the Earth. I mean, one kilogram can power around 10,000 homes for a year. So it's fairly limitless in terms of our potential to create power from it. But it's definitely something that has a potential to be a future power source. And I think it's something that I mean, Stephen Hawkins has held it as one of the biggest sort of potentials for the future, really. While we can't dismiss the fact that they're saying it's going to be 10 years away, obviously we've heard that before and it's not happened. We can't dismiss it completely. Obviously, hydrogen naysayers have been saying that uh, and are suddenly being proven wrong. But we also can't put all the eggs in one basket either. By saying that there's this limitless potential to replace existing energy sources, it says, and I know we've talked about this, Peter, that it, there's this perfect opportunity for fossil fuel companies to say, oh, well, let's just wait for Fusion then. We won't build solar panels. We won't build wind farms. We'll continue as we are. It's certainly easier for them to say that than it is for them to actually transform their business. So we need to be very aware that Fusion, we can't bank on Fusion being there in by 2050. And we actually need these companies that, could be pointing to fusion as the future energy resource to to actually transform themselves.
0: Yeah, I'm worried about how much of this dialogue that leaks out of so many areas of uh, renewable energy is all about leaving things as they are. Let's have a a campaign to keep things as they are. You start looking at the shape of the grid. If you're going to embrace renewables it needs to be a vastly different shape. It needs to be a much more of a peer-to-peer network. And at the moment, it's built around large centralized providers of energy. And if we think that fusion's coming in 20 years, then we'll leave the grid as it is, in which case we don't really need to worry about renewable energy. Comparing it with hydrogen isn't quite fair because hydrogen is a technology we've known how to do for over a hundred years. The hydrogen is about doing it cheaply and that we know we can change this is something we don't know how to do and it's something that may never know how to do it it's a long way off um the chances are that somewhere somebody will control and get energy from nuclear fusion by 2050 in an experiment in a laboratory then we've got to build out a whole industry And then we've got to restructure our grids once again if we want to use that. Because I I doubt very much that this is going to be a situation where you can put 50 or 60 of these across the country. It's going to be ones and twos. So, again, it's just all too convenient to be leaking this kind of idea on the renewable industry. And it's just to shape politicians' thoughts.
2: The interesting thing that I think, and I... We've seen it through this US-backed startup called General Fusion, which is among the many startups at the moment. We've seen quite a lot of funding to develop these Fusion projects, um, saying that they have commercial projects online by around 2025, is that Fusion could almost become the next sort of space race of the big private companies. Bezos is backed Fusion companies. Gates has backed Fusion companies. I wouldn't be surprised to see Musk back a Fusion companies soon. So that could become the next sort of innovation race, If there is any sort of commercial success over the next four five ten years you can only go so far with this technology with public funding and if you get the private funding piling into it then that's when the tipping point could come in terms of its development but as i've said that's something that we can't bank on being successful i wouldn't encourage anyone to to solely think that we're going to be running on nuclear fusion in 2050.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just to use that hydrogen analogy again, in Japan, they thought we were going to have a hydrogen society back in 1980. Here we are 40 years later, and people are still doubting that it's possible. And that's with the technology we already knew how to do. So you can lose 40 years in a blink of an eye. You've got to carry on as if it's not there until it really is there.
2: Yeah, so the best case scenario is that we'll have these demonstrators come online in 2025. They'll need to have at least five, six years of operation to prove that they're technically working. And I imagine that maybe in 10 years time, we'll see our first sustainable fusion reaction at that point. So 2030 is when people start developing commercial ideas. It will take 10, 15 years for that to become reality when they can actually be planning projects so that'll be around 2040 2045 when they can be planning the projects because it's projects that are first their kind these projects will take at least five ten years to build and then they'll need to prove that they can operate safely so realistically my instincts for nuclear fusion would say 2070 is a realistic time frame for us to start actually seeing it having material impact on the grid
0: I'm going to challenge that a little bit. There's um, news reports this morning, and we've heard this story repeated several times over the last 12 months. President Macron in France has confirmed that the long-running rumour that France will commission another six nuclear plants. Basically, he's been negotiating with EDF about the fact that the government needs to pay for them because EDF can't borrow any more money. So they're going to be built over the coming 20 years And the idea is that he's going to take the 56 plants they've already got and extend their life by at least 10 years from 35, 40 to 50 years. So France won't be having any of this uh, energy anytime soon because over the next 20 years, so we're talking 2040, it'll have its energy sorted out for 50 years so it's not going to be installing any of these before 2090 so people are still looking at technology which is 30 or 40 years out of date and talking about pushing it into the future 50 years and that's just politicians backing industries and backing jobs and that's how decisions are sometimes made in this industry so just because something is finally possible doesn't mean that it's going to happen
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that's why I'd say that if there's going to be fusion coming from commercial companies, it's going to be these private companies. It's going to be your general fusions, your TAY technologies. Commonwealth Fusion Systems is another one.
0: Let's give Simon his chance. Pick a couple of items this week, Simon, in the issue that you need explaining or want to highlight. Well, it was just down to the renewable orders of the week, and there are dozens of wind power projects and orders in the pipeline. And Yet, at the same time, we're writing about the results of Danish wind turbine maker Vestas. And again, it's not good. And I know we've discussed this a few weeks ago, but why is a big company, established company like Vestas, not doing well? Harry, you want to get a first shot on that? Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's several factors at play here. And I think they're all factors that we're very familiar with, i say, a post-COVID world in this area that we're in. Vestas has obviously really struggled. I think companies with large Shipments and where your supply chains dotted around the world are really struggling at the moment with not only inflation of commodity costs. So for for wind turbine manufacturers, that's largely steel for foundations for towers and for the blade, not for the blades themselves actually. But it's also the shipment costs. I'm actually transporting these goods around the world, um, that, which have really pushed up not only the cost of the turbines themselves but the cost of projects and that really has crushed the margins of projects that Vesta's been developing. I mean Siemens Gamesa is facing very much the same issues. It is potentially a sign of a maturing industry. Uh, it's potentially a sign that the wind industry isn't going to enjoy the price falls that it's enjoyed in the past 10-20 sort of years and um, had actually reached the point where it's a point where it's already cheaper than fossil fuel technologies which is great it might not fall in cost Significant year on year. I mean, we do still see a downward trend. Oh, it's
0: definitely going to keep falling in cost. So this is just the same as the polysilicon's issue for solar panels. This is a short-term thing. The people are making a lot of money out of increasing the costs of moving stuff around the planet because during the pandemic, so much stuff needed to be moved. People are going to continue to make money out of that until someone has to cut their prices to get business, and that's going to happen in 2023 sometime. You notice Vestas still added 4 billion to its order book. It jumped to 47 billion. It's got 47 billion firm orders on its books. All it has to do is build those for the next three, four years, and it will continue to run as a 15 to 16 billion euro business. So it's not alarming. And there will be a time when all the collective uh, ideas that come into turbines uh, dictate price falls instead of price rises because of the short-term profiteering that goes on in uh, transport and things like the increased price in steel.
1: Off the top of my head, didn't shipping costs from China to the US increase by a factor of something crazy like 20? And probably steel went up by two or three times. I don't remember the steel one.
2: Yeah, those figures sound about right. And they all have a a short-term impact on the cost of turbines. But the general cost of actually building the turbines and building the blades and actually installing the projects, the actual cost of doing that on a ground level is going down. So once we've got over these supply chain issues, the cost of the projects will go down. And just like we've seen, the all majors enjoying a really good year this year. Probably next year again, it will be great for the wind turbine manufacturers and the solar developers.
1: And I tend to think of solar as the newer one with all these weird technologies. But wind is improving its basic proposition as well, because it's constantly getting these larger turbines, which I assume are more cost efficient.
2: That's an interesting point. Generally, the larger turbines are pushing the market offshore. I think once offshore wind can bring the cost down to competitive with onshore wind, that's when we'll see the investment really switch. I think that can happen. Obviously, the cost of developing an offshore wind farm, once you've got the economies of scale there, will be lower due to the ease of actually installing those projects. A large amount of the cost for building an onshore wind project is working out how you're going to transport turbine towers that are often getting towards 100 metres high, getting them around local infrastructure and getting them around the roads to these remote parts of the country where they're installed.
0: Yeah, the offshore ones are much taller than that, aren't they? I mean, you've got offshore turbines the size of the Eiffel Tower.
2: Yes, exactly. I mean, there's lots of pictures that you'll see of record turbines next to the Eiffel Tower. And that's where we're really seeing the innovation pushing. I think in terms of onshore wind, the, the innovation that we're really seeing at the moment is in terms of the actual on-site development of projects. I mean, we're, trying, we're seeing people trying to develop modular towers, for example. We're seeing some companies ex- experimenting with the idea of 3D printing towers actually on the site of where the wind farm's going to be. And I think that's where the new sort of push for innovation is coming for onshore wind is in the at logistical side of it.
0: Simon, are there any other items that caught your eye? The top 25
2: companies sampled in major report, Guilt of Greenwashing. I don't know why all of these companies are lumped together, because a shipping company like Maersk
0: and Nestle, they're two completely separate, different types of outfits, except they are big. So why are they all being lumped in together? So this is Corporate Climate Responsibility Monitor. It just picked out 25. I think it supplies information on thousands of companies as best it can. And the shipping company that was uh, quoted was Maersk, who has perhaps got the highest score out of any of these 25 companies, and which is described as they have reasonable integrity because they um, they genuinely are trying to get rid of bunker fuel in their shipping, which accounts for most of their emissions. But of course, other companies like Utility NL are lumped in with other companies that have got far less awareness of... I mean, NL is constantly aware of um, its issues around coal plants and has been trying to eliminate them from all of its operations. And we'll get there in two to three more years. What that leaves it with is the fact that it supplies gas to millions of households in Spain and Italy... And it's looking for a politician to solve that problem or to help solve that problem. Because at the moment, gas is um, used for heating. Um, Okay, Italy and uh, Spain don't use a lot of gas because they don't have particularly cold winters. It's much more prominent in the northern Europe uh, countries. But that problem needs to be solved. And it gave NL a kind of bad score because it hasn't done anything about solving it. No one in Europe has no one in America has. The idea that we should all use heat pumps is just an idea and no one's got the right government subsidy or support to trigger a big uptake. And that's definitely a challenge, but I don't think it's NLs on its own. Anyway, that report is there. That's a story on the website. The links are in the description for all of these stories. There's hundreds of other interesting items on the uh, website and we'll be here again next Friday taking apart the moves that happen out on the energy market and trying to explain them as best we can to you. Thank you.